be with you this morning. If you brought a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Psalms, and one of the best ways to find the Psalms is just to kind of go to the center of your Bible and open it up. Um, We'll be reading from Psalm 95 this morning. Before I do that, just a word about what we're going to be doing this morning and for the next couple weeks in January. Um, what you might call a Jan term or something like that, uh, whatever you want to call it. We're just we're going to try to use this time annually uh, to to talk about some things that um, are good for us as a church to talk about. And um, uh, this this year we're going to talk about worship and. What we think that is, what does the Bible say that it is? Uh, what do we want it to look like here? Um, what do we want to be focused on as a church? And you might consider this more of a getting on the same page with certain elements of worship type of uh, series. So I hope that you find this um, edifying in, in the least, uh, but uh, that, it, that this is what we'll be doing for the next three weeks. This morning we'll look at what worship is. Next week we'll look at the work of worship um, as, as and more of a putting it under the, ma- the magnifying glasses, if you will. But this morning, it's, it, we're pulling back sort of the 30,000-foot view of, of, of what worship is in general. So, and then we'll start our winter series, or yeah, I guess winter-spring series in February on the life of David. So that's a little bit about what's going ahead. Well, let's turn now to Psalm 95 as we talk about worship and what it is as we look at Psalm 95 here. Um, so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we meet this morning, as we continue to ask for your spirit to be present, we pray now that you would Open our eyes and our ears as we hear your word, that you would, uh, Lord, allow us to see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray, Lord, that our our hearts would be softened by your spirit, not hardened, as the text refers, that we would receive you as good soil receives a seed and grows a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I say the word worship to you, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Um, For some, maybe it could be singing. When you hear the word worship, 
think of singing. Some might think church. Some might think a Maryland basketball game. I don't know. What comes to mind when you hear the word worship? For centuries, the church has used Psalm 95 as a call and a guide to uh, what we refer to as corporate worship of God by his people. And from the very beginning, as we look, right, the psalm, uh, there's an invitation here. There's, there's an invitation to come and to sing to the Lord. We see that in the psalm. There's shouting even as we look at this psalm. There's praise. Um, there's bowing down. There's listening, right? There's instruction to think about something. To not harden your heart, but consider the Lord. There's warning and consequence. In short, uh, if there's two words to describe what's going on here uh, in this psalm as it pertains to corporate worship specifically, it's loud and active. Loud and active. And while this psalm, as I've said, has in mind what we would think of as corporate worship or God's people worshiping together, I want to look at this psalm and ask, what is it saying about the act of worship itself, about worship in general. So this morning, we're not going to be talking about the particulars of, of, of maybe a corporate worship service or, or even, you know, just in general or specifically, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But rather, I want to ask the question of what worship is. We all have opinions if we're Christians about what happens in here, but let's, let's pull back and ask the question, what is worship in general? What what does it do to us? How does Scripture think about it? Uh, what are the effects of worship on us? Because while we all worship something, and this is, this is what, what the Bible assumes about you, we all worship something whether you're a Christian or not, what it is that we worship shapes us and transforms us, whether we realize it or not. Worship always transforms us. And what do I mean by it shapes or transforms Consider uh, life, if you can, before your cell phone. And if you've entered into some of that imagination, right, you've asked the question or you've, you've heard, what did we do before cell phones, before I had a cell phone, right? And as we think about that, for better or for worse, not saying anything good or bad about cell phones, right, we realize, right, we, we don't leave the house now without cell phones, um, and according to the latest studies, if we're apart from our cell phone for more than four minutes, we get anxious, we get afraid, we get worried, right? That's, that's shaped us. Again, for better or for worse, not saying anything good or bad about it, just saying that's what it means to be shaped by something. Worship shapes us. What we worship shapes us. It transforms us, whether we realize it or not. And what this psalm will, will drive us to seeing is that what we worship does one of two things. It either kills us or it gives us life or rest, as the text says. And the only way our worship gives us this true rest is if our worship is of the one true God, is of Jesus Christ. That is, that is what brings us the rest the psalm talks about, all of Scripture points to. So I want to look at three things that are not printed in your bulletin. I want to look at what worship is in general, I want to look at what we worship, which might get a little more specific, and then I want to look at what worship does to us. Again, 30,000-foot view here. We've got three weeks for this. I was thinking somebody was asking what, what, was, what we're going to talk on in January. I said, oh, I think the topic of worship, and the comment was sort of along the lines of, Are you, do you want to get fired? This <laughs> so, We can laugh at that, right? Because it, 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 it's a hot topic. We all, you know, 
we all got opinions about it, and I want to disarm those a little bit and kind of help us to back up a little bit, and let's talk about the big topic of worship. Let's relax. Let's have a good time together. Okay, let's take that first one. Uh, what is worship? According to Psalm 95, what is worship? Before we even talk about specific types of wor- worship, like corporate worship, right, we need to all, in one sense, get on the same page about worship in general. And the first thing that I want us to see as it pertains to what worship is, and here's your definition, is worship is simply giving your whole self wholly or completely to something. Worship is giving your whole self wholly or completely to something. Look at what's happening here in Psalm 95. First, there is the call to come and sing, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Then there's the invitation to kneel and bow down. Then there is this call to hear and discern who God is, but also what is going on in your life. As we said, don't harden your heart. Right? And so just from observation, as we look at this, what we see here is that worship uh, engages all of us, all, all of ourselves, emotionally, intellectually, even physically. In other words, worship engages everything that you are. It, is, it engages your entire self. And the structure of the psalm helps us see that a lot more when we look at this. There's really two calls here. And so from verses 1 to 5, that's the first call. You have a summons. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. And that goes, carries until verse 2, and then verses 3 to 5 are what? The reason why we should do this. And then the call begins again with another summons, verse 6 to 7, and then reason again, right? In other words, worship, as the Bible understands it, is something that engages us wholly, entirely, mind, body, spirit, everything. And so one of the things that this means is that as we consider what worship is, is that if worship for us, for example, if we think, well, it's just about singing. I, I really enjoy this part of the service. I want to come in here and I, and I want to engage my emotions. I want the, the music to be really good. Right? That is great, but that's not worship if we're just engaging ourselves emotionally. Right? Some of us might think, well, you know, singing's fine. Right? But what I'm really here for is I want, I want to hear what the pastor has to say. I want to, re- I want to understand the Bible better. I want, I want to get into the theology of things. I want to learn. Great thing. If that is all that we think worship is, that's not worship according to Scripture. Worship is giving your whole self wholly or completely to something. And why? Because it is transformative. It's transforming everything. It's shaping everything. On Sundays, you know, we think about how we do this just to kind of put some, um, give us some illustrations. And again, this may be something that you've thought about and, and, and it's old news, but when we think about how we do that here, which is hard because we have ranges of ages and ability, but, you know, here on Sundays, for example, we have you stand during parts of the service, not because we want to keep you awake, which can be, you know, profitable, but because that's an actual physical way you're engaged into the act of worship, of, ser- of, of this service. I don't know if you thought about it that way. Um, all right, for centuries, the church has had kneelers, and some traditions still do. Why? Because well, for several reasons, but worship is engaging our whole selves. We're doing something. We're participating. Singing, right, is a part of corporate worship specifically. And why? Have you ever thought about what happens when you sing something? 
Um, when you sing something, you're owning its ideals and values. You're essentially saying yes to that. Well, what is that? That's emotion. That's emotion, right? We don't think about what it means to sing something that much today that, that is what it's doing to me or why singing has this effect on me as it does, but singing, right, it shapes us. Right? So it's an element of the service as we read about it in here. Right? Consider any good rock concert you've been to. The chances are you didn't just sit there and watch. All right? Some concerts would be appropriate to do that for, but you know, like your favorite band? Right? Remember way back when when you did that? You didn't just sit there and look at that. You engaged you, right? You, you owned its ideals and values in one sense. You sang it. It's an emotional thing. This is what worship is. Um, as we look at this text, um, it engages all of our, our whole selves, our intellect, our emotions, our being. If we're just looking at it and saying, you know, I, I just want to think about these things uh, and, and not engage my emotions and it's not worship. We just want to come in here and have this sort of emotional feel-good experience but not engage our intellect. It's not worship, right? So on and so forth. It engages everything. Worship is giving our whole selves again to something holy completely. And the expression of that, now this is where we move into uh, lots of opinions, right? How should that be expressed? Is there an objective sense of that? And we're not getting to that today, but how we express that is different. And just to note that, um, and we all express it differently in and, and different seasons of life. Some of us here haven't slept in a while. Uh, some of us, our bodies aren't working the way that they should. And so we've got to consider all of this as we try to engage our whole selves even in this service. Um, but the principle is the same. Worship engages all of our whole selves. Um, and again, while we have ideas about worship, very few of us, as we look at this, um, very few of us understand what worship is. We have opinions about it. We, we think highly of the idea of worship in certain ways, but few of us understand what worship really is. And I'm not saying that as somebody who, who does fully understand it. But what I mean is that we, especially as Christians, can limit worship to this thing or that thing. Right, we can limit worship uh, to just doing something uh, over here and not over here or engaging this part of my body or, or my brain and not my emotions or right? my emotions, not my intellect. Instead, what I want us to see is it's giving, as we read in the text, it's giving our whole selves wholly to something, completely to something, mind, body, and spirit. There's, of course, more to say about this, and we'll get there in time, but I, I want this first point to really sink in. Um, I want you to do an inventory on what worship is for you, and I want you to ask yourself, whatever I think worship is, like when that word comes to my mind, do I think of it as something that engages all of me? Mind, body, spirit. Do I think of it as something that engages every part of me? How might then I, might, I be putting limits on what I think about worship? Which you know, can be putting emphasis on preferences, right? Being back up. Review this. How might I be putting limits on worship? Do I understand that true worship is transformative? Meaning that it, it, it requires all of me, all of myself. Or am I just looking to tune in at different parts of the service? Right. Do I get frustrated when I'm asked to stand for a song or call to worship? 
do I think I haven't worshipped if I didn't have some type of emotional experience in this place? Not to say anything bad about that. That's good. We should, we should have good experiences. But what are the ways that we might be limiting, limiting worship? Let me expand this a little bit more. Do I recognize that worship, in one sense, happens after we leave this place? Worship isn't confined to the 1030, 12 o'clock window um, where Wallace Presbyterian opens his doors. That my work and how I do, uh, how I treat others, right? All those things connected to worship. How I parent. How I think about food. How I think about my body. My money. In other words, are, are those my things? To do as I please or are we stewards of these things? Because if worship is giving my whole self to something, right, that can't mean worship starts and stops around the hours of 10, 30, and 12 on a Sunday. See, we've got to think bigger about what the idea of worship is and how Scripture looks at it. Scripture knows something about us that we don't really think much about and really know much about for ourselves, which is that our hearts are worshiping constantly. Not just in here, everywhere. And, and one of the wonderful ways that God has designed us and, and our creation and everything is that actually engaging in the things that he has given us to engage, whether it's work or, or family life or whatever it is, right, that is a form of worship because what? We're giving ourselves to him wholly. So we're doing those things for him. And that gets a little bit more into next week, but I just wanted to point, point us to that. But worship, how are the ways that we're limiting worship? What are the ways that we need to think about it in a bigger sense? That it is truly giving our whole self completely to something. The danger of thinking that worship only happens in a church service like this, for example, is that it misunderstands the human nature and how God has made us. And this gets to my second point, what we worship. All right, but what is worship? Worship is giving our whole self wholly or completely to something. Second, what, what is it that we worship? Well, the simple answer is, is we worship what we ascribe value to, what we find worth, worthy of our worship. Some of you know this, but the word for worship in the English comes from the word worth-ship. Worth-ship, right? To mean to assign worth to something, value to something. Um, this is kind of the feel when we read in the Psalms, ascribe to the Lord, you know, whatever, whatever the psalmist writes at that point, as we might find in other parts of the Bible. But worth-ship is the act of assigning worth or value to something. Worship is what we have already assigned ultimate value to, which is why, to come back to, we are always worshiping. We don't turn it off. There's something we're always assigning value to, and we're giving ourselves to that. I might value Coca-Cola products, and we can talk about this at a lunch sometime. Um, I do value Coca-Cola products, uh, and, and if I go to lunch with you, as happened this week with a friend, and, and they had Pepsi instead, as if it's the same thing, I will not order a, a Pepsi. Um, and some of y'all might think that's kind of strange. I know people who will walk out of the restaurant at that point, and you probably do too. But see, there's value there for me, but there's not ultimate value. I'm not leaving. But there's value. It's not, it's not ultimate value. And my actions sort of say the same. When the pandemic hit in 2020 and we were in lockdown, um, I did what, what everyone did. And that is they dug out their old baseball cards and basketball cards 
and did an inventory of what you had, right? That's what you guys did, right? I'm sure. Sure you did. Um, but as I looked at this stuff, and I was going through these old basketball cards that had been you know, literally you know, under a bed or in a closet, in a box, not paid attention to at all, I started going through these and started looking at what I had and getting on the internet and just checking out, like, what are some of these things going for? Uh, what else are you going to do in lockdown? Um, some people learned another language. <laughs> no, it's great. I'm looking at value of cards. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at, at, at this, and I come across this basketball card. It was like a 1991 Hoops basketball card, if, you're, if, you're, if you traded cards or anything like that growing up. And I noticed that the value of this card, for some reason, was, was way more than it should be. It wasn't a rookie card. It was this person I'd never even heard of. And I started doing some research on it, and what happened with this card, is you look at this card, is it's, the way that the picture is, is it shows people who are sitting on the front row of the basketball court, who's on court side. And as you looked a little closer, you notice there's these two brothers sitting there on court side, and it's the Menendez brothers. And some of you know who that is, and some of you don't, and that's okay. The Menendez brothers, in the early 90s, right, they were sentenced, it's a little dark, for killing their parents. And it got a lot of, I guess, publicity because it was such an unusual story. Well, it's not like that card carried value in 91 because nobody really knew who these people were until later on after their sentencing. Um, and it wasn't like after their sentencing people realized that this they were in this card. And so what happened was about a year prior to 2020, somebody was going through their stuff and paid more attention than most people to the cards and noticed, wait a minute, that, that's the Menendez brothers. And as they dated the picture, what, what became, why it became a collector's item for some people is that it dated them as this is before their arrest but after the murder. So there's this really weird, eerie feel, and so people started buying them, and it skyrocketed. Well, I had three of them. <laughs> I had three of them. And this is why I tell you this story, because what's interesting is what happened next. First, I carefully got the cards out of the box, right? Prior to this, as I said, they just stayed neglected in some, you know, unprotected place, just sitting there, right? I inspected their corners, Right? I might have dusted it off a little bit. I found new homes for them by taking these other worthless cards that I'd had in nice cases and took those cards out and I put this card in a really nice case and protected it. I even put it in a different box, a box labeled valuable. I began to talk about this card. If you came over to my house, and my wife's tired of hearing about it, but if you came over to my house, I'd show, I talked about the card. I showed you the card. Talked about why it was unique. Isn't that a weird story? And it's got some value to it. It was, to say the least, my precious. I kept it right here. That's, friends, that's worship. That's worship. It's assigning value to something. And we're all ordering what we value. And certain things come to the top during certain times of our lives for a season. Mark Jackson basketball card, boy, it was close. I have since repented just for the sake of, right? But, but what did it do to me? Right? Did I just think about it? You know, kind of intellectually pontificate its value and the rareness of it and 
and not tell anybody? Or did I just, you know, did I tell somebody about it and not think about what it needs, you know, as far as protection and putting it in a case and, and, and putting it in a box labeled valuable? No, I, it, it got all of me. It got all of me. That's worship. And you have that. And this is what you worship. As I said, we all, it's, we're always, our hearts are ordering things, and there's some things that stay at the top, right? We come in here for a confession of sin every Sunday. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be confessing 24-7, but we come in here to be reminded what to reorder our heart's values right, as a people of God. Because sometimes Mark Jackson makes it up there, right? Sometimes that 81 hoops card but the Menendez Menendez brothers in the back, because of its value, gets a little too close. And so we need to reorder those things and come in here and confess, because why? That's what we worship. We worship what we think is most valuable to us. And so what are the ways that we do this? And how do we even find out what we are overvaluing in one sense. And, and one of the ways that, that we do that, and, and it's my desire that we become and, if, you know, and continue to be a church culture that, that, that lives in this world where we understand our hearts better. We understand that we're people that overvalue things, good things, that we need each other to do the practice and the work of reordering those things. But how do we then begin that, how do we begin that process, though, of understanding what it is that we're already worshiping, what we're already giving ourselves to? And, and one of the ways that you can do this is just take inventory of what it is that you daydream about. You know, it, those moments where you just space out and your mind becomes just, it, it almost by default goes to something else. Or what is it that you get really anxious about often, that you worry about? Chances are, those are the things that you are overvaluing. Because the more that we daydream about something, and that can be worrying about something, but the more that it occupies our mental space, our hearts drift towards those things. And give it more and more value. To where we are then giving what? More and more of our whole selves to it. That's why worship is so much bigger than what happens here between the hours of 10, 30, and 12. It doesn't stop. So what are the things you daydream about? Just a couple just to kind of get you thinking. Maybe it's money. And I've talked about money before in my own, in just in my own heart. Um, but you daydream about having enough. Having enough money. Because if you have enough, perhaps maybe this, this, is, this will really set you free. Or, for some of us, this is, this is what it will take to get somebody to really respect me or notice me. So the value of money goes way up here. For some of us, it's beauty. It's beauty. You daydream about being beautiful enough or having beautiful things. And one of the reasons we might daydream about being being beautiful enough is because we want to be desired. And that that is a good thing. That's how God created you. But it can become an ultimate thing, right? 
We want to be desired. Or we think that if we have beautiful things, we'll be happy. We'll be content. So we give ourselves to those things. For some of us, it's, it's our children. It can be our children. Some of us are sinfully assigning too much value to being a parent. Some of us worship our children. We throw ourselves into that and to, to the point where we don't know who we are outside of being parents. We reordering. We've given our whole selves to something when we were called to be stewards of it. When we always, always had or never lost sight of who the giver was. One of the ways I find out about what I'm daydreaming about, and this is where technology can be good, if I was throwing it under the bus earlier, is um, you know, my phone will give me these reports, weekly reports. Here's where you've been spending your time. Here are the apps you've been looking at. Here's the websites you've been looking at. And surprise, surprise, Yahoo Finance. Like We're going like two or three months in a row here. It's number one. It's getting all my time. You know, however much time I'm giving to being on my phone. I need to pay attention to that. That's actually really helpful. It's, it, it's tell, like, you know, the, the mundaneness of, of what our phones do, right? We just sort of search it. We just sort of look at it. We space out. That's telling us something about what's going on inside of us. And it's not to say that we need to get rid of it at this point, or it's not to say that you need, you know, these are bad things, but this is what's occupying my, my, my headspace. And the more that I think about these things, the more that I daydream about them, the, or the more that I worry about them, the more that my heart right, grows towards them, to where it gets all of me. Come back to Gollum. Where did he start? What was the process of, of getting to where he ended? Right, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful illustration. That is exactly what we mean by what we worship and what it does to us. Um, as we think about other ways about how we discern you know, what it is that we're worshiping to stay on this point before we leave, is, is to ask ourselves, and especially as Christians, you know, God, if you would just give me this one thing, this one thing, then I would be content. What is that? There's a chance that that's what you're worshiping. Or to, to reverse that, God, you can send me anywhere. You can ask anything of me, but just don't take this thing away from me. What, that's probably where your worship is. The American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this. He said, that which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we are worshiping. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we worship is what we value, what we assign worth to. What does your heart treasure most this morning? What does it treasure most this morning? And is it something that you'd be willing to give up? To transfer, if you will, to the only thing that can give us what you're really looking for, which is rest. This gets to the last point. What is worship doing to us? Right? If worship is something that's happening all the time, and what we worship is what we value, then what is it doing to us? And I already said it earlier, it's, it's really doing one of two things. It's either it's leading us on a path which is, that is essentially leading to death. It's killing us. Right? Or it's giving us rest. It's giving us life. 
Those are really the only two options at this point. As we've been saying, worship does something to us. It transforms us. It shapes us. We are always the clay. Right? And that's also part of this challenge is we, we, we think we're not sometimes, that we are in control. Mm. We are always the clay. And so as we look back at this text, there's the second half of this um, and there's a lot of, you know, interesting thought about, does this even belong here in this psalm? And, then, and, and the answer is absolutely it does. Beginning at 7b, going all the way to the end, there's this warning to Israel. And this warning is not to harden your heart as, as you hear this message. And, and let me stop there because that might be true for some of us this morning. That might be just maybe right where we are this morning. Right? This entire service not just the, the preaching, and then even after as we come to the table, all of it, right, all of it is God's message to you, his grace to you, that he is, he is the one true God, that he is worthy of our praise. Like all that is coming at you. Don't harden your heart towards it. Receive it. Open it. That might be where you are, right? Give yourself wholly to him. But in this warning to Israel, they are being reminded, as we see, of the consequences of a generation that did not trust or give themselves completely to God. If you go back to verse 10, it says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. The understatement, as we look throughout Scripture, God cares about worship cares about what we worship. He takes worship seriously, and whether it's not giving ourselves to him or it's giving ourselves to something else, worship can kill you. That's the picture throughout the entire Bible. It can kill you. We, or what we put at the center of our lives gets all of us. This is what, this is what the Bible believes. Again, think about Gollum, right? He gets his precious, it kills him, it makes him less and less of what he was created to be. But something I've continued to come back to, if you've had a chance or haven't had a chance to read this, look up the 2005 commencement speech at Kenyon College by the late philosopher David Foster Wallace. And before I read this, what wasn't, it's not known that David was a Christian by any means. These are observations he made uh, and that he wrote about. And I want to share them with you as it pertains to what worship does to us. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, think about this, the philosopher giving a commencement speech to a graduating class at Kenyon College, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He continues, and, and, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, the reason for doing this is that pretty much anything else you will worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Uh, never feel you have enough, right? It's the truth, he says. Worship your own be- your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel guilty. And you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The worship does something to us. What you worship will require everything of you. Mind, heart, body, everything. It will require all that you are because it is transformative. It changes us. All right? But there's something else worship can do besides kill you. Worship can give you rest. Worship can give you rest. The antithesis of verse 11 here is that only when we give our whole self wholly or completely to God can we find that rest. And that rest can only be found, according to Scripture, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he is the one that we reorder to the top of the list. That he is at the center of our lives. What did it mean for, for him to say, for the psalmist to say, you will not enter my rest? What did that mean to Israel? I think it's helpful as we understand what it means to enter his rest. Uh, and this is, this is another sermon series, so this is going to be brief. But, but there was a physical, tangible rest because it meant entering a land that God had promised his people. And most of you are familiar with this. But what did that land represent? In short, it represents everything that Revelation is pointing to, which is God's dwelling place with man forever. He was going to call them to this place. This would be the place flowing of milk with milk and honey. Right? It was all here. Come be here. Live, right? Live with me, by me, obey me, trust me. And this, this is where true shalom will be found. And what does that word mean? It, it doesn't just mean one thing as it tends to mean in our language. It, it means all is well with all things. That's what God was promising them in this place. That's the rest that he was giving them. Everything would become, in one sense, like the Garden of Eden again, where God was at the center of mankind. Work would not be frustrated, but fruitful. Relationships would not be hurtful, but healing. But probably more important, there was a temple there. And in that temple, there was a place where atonement could be made, where sacrifices could be made for the sins that you committed against God, that you committed against others, that you committed against yourself, which was the root, the core of what drove that peace, that shalom. And for all that to be there, right, that's entering God's rest, his peace. But as we come to the New Testament, we, we, we learn that this was but a shadow of the real thing, right? a rest that, that won't come from entering a land, so to speak, but, but rest from, from what? It comes from a person. It comes from Jesus. We share in God's own Sabbath rest, Derek Kidner says, the enjoyment of his finished work, not merely in creation, but what? Of redemption. This is why Augustine, as we put in the Confession of Sin, says this. He says, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. See, worship either kills us or it gives us rest. It all depends on the object of that worship, and the only object of that worship is Jesus. He is the one that gives us rest. He's the one that we come to. You want rest from not having enough, from not being enough? 
what rests from your greed, as we talked about earlier, right? Begin to see Jesus in his life and death for us, his grace as your true treasure. So much of, of, this, of this sermon is, what, what is, what is your treasure? What is, the, what is it your heart? What does it want? Come to see him and, and the work that he's done on your behalf, right? As your true treasure, you will have rest from not having enough. You're tired of not being enough. Come and receive the work that he has done on your behalf. Right? The word Sabbath literally means stop, guys. Stop. Stop what? You come in here to be reminded to stop trying to bring something that, that makes God be favorable towards you. You rest from, from, from your work, yes, but you also rest from all the ways that you are trying to earn his favor. But you're trying to be good enough, resting from all the ways where you haven't been good enough. And instead, you rest in him because he makes you enough. That's the Sabbath rest that we enter into with him. It is an issue of identity. In Christ, you are enough. Are there any parents out there today that need to hear that? After a week of hard parenting, I'm sure there are. Right? Are, there, are there any students out there who, who, who need to hear this right? after the pressures of, of, of trying to matter? trying to be significant. You're enough because Jesus has made you enough. Those who are being killed by their professions, your jobs, right, telling you you're not enough. We need to talk about that, but where are you ordering that in your life? Does Jesus get the final say of what it means to be enough or not? that you are, in fact, a son or daughter of his, that is what is most important. See, that's the rest he gives you. We could go on and go on. Next week, we'll look at how grace then doesn't leave us where we are, right? As we learn to repent unto Christ, and we'll talk about this as the work of worship. But Jesus died so that you could enter his rest. He is the lamb that the church has been given, right? So that, so that we might truly know peace. And he has given all of himself for you so that you might learn to what? Trust in giving all of yourself to him. And as we come to this table, this is another reminder of that. He hasn't given a part of himself. He hasn't given his, just his intellect to you. He hasn't just given his emotions to you. He has given everything to you that we might learn to give everything, all of ourselves to him too, that we might learn what it means to truly worship. And in that worship, find the joy and the freedom and the rest that we were created to have. Let us come to him this day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the ways that your grace has been made abundantly clear already. Father, we confess. We, we, we have already confessed. We've, our hearts go after so many things. We pray that we would be a people that trust you that trust that you're enough, that care more about what you think about us than our friends do, that care more about um, how you value us than the way that we value ourselves. Father, have mercy on us in the ways that we look to other things. We assign worth to things that, that do not deserve it. You're, you, you, Father, are the only one that deserves this worship. And so we pray that
that you would continue to shape us and transform us as your people. As you promised to do, that's the beauty of it. You promised to do this, and you are doing this. As we continue to follow you as our God, as we continue to be your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.